Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Augustus Rose is a novelist and screenwriter. He lives in Chicago with his family, and he teaches fiction writing at the University of Chicago. Tom Bissell is the author of eight books, most recently Apostle, Travel Among the Tombs of the Twelve, and has been awarded the Rome Prize and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He writes frequently for Harper's Magazine and The New Yorker. Uh, the Ready-Made Thief has been described as highly addictive and a rich and heady mix of ideas and thrills. Uh, Lee Cuddy is a 17 years, 17 years old and on the run, alone on the streets of Philadelphia. After taking the fall for a rich friend, Lee reluctantly accepts refuge in the Crystal Castle, a cooperative of homeless kids squatting in an austere, derelict building. But homeless kids are disappearing from the streets in suspicious numbers, and Lee quickly discovers that the Secret Society's charitable facade is too good to be true. So please help me welcome Augustus Rose and Tom Bissell. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, I have known Gus Rose for an appallingly long time. 15 years, I think we determined. I think so. um, and I couldn't be happier uh, to be here tonight to discuss his book with you, um, The Ready-Made Thief. Uh, Vanessa already introduced him, so she sort of cut my legs out from underneath me in the first part of my introduction, but that's all right. Um, uh, he is a California boy returning home, Northern California, so it doesn't really count, but, uh, and he, the other thing that uh, I can tell you is that he is a relatively new dad, which I mention only because that will come up before we are done here tonight. Um, the Ready Made Thief is a book about, uh, a young woman, uh, from Philadelphia who's had a rough life and her life gets progressively rougher through the course of the book. She gets wrapped up in this really weird, compelling conspiracy that involves secret societies and illicit drugs and raves, uh, the work of the art artist Marcel Duchamp, believe it or not, and uh, it also has a lot of stuff on the phenomenon of urban exploration or urbex. Do you guys know about this? This is where gutter punk street kid types climb around in decrepit old buildings and I assume get tetanus. Um, <laughs> I'm a relatively new dad too, so things like that are on my mind. Um, it's a really fun and, and gripping uh, kind of quest novel or thriller that wonderfully straddles a line between literary and commercial fiction, I think, and it sort of takes the best from, from both. Um, it's, uh, it's really not bullshit when I say the next thing that I'm going to say, that Gus is genuinely one of the de most decent and nicest people that, uh, that I've, I know, and it's just thrilling to, to be here with him. And uh, it's going to be a real honor to publicly pick his literary brain uh, after he gives us uh, uh, a little taste of the book uh, for all of us sitting here tonight. Thank you, Tom. Um, and thank you, Vanessa. I've never actually been to Skylight Books. Um, I've always wanted to come here and do a reading here. Um, every, all my author friends who have read here say this is the place to be. And I can see why. These beautifully art ceilings. And I always, I always notice the duck work in buildings and especially bookstores I go into and there's a really nice line of ducts that run <laughs> along over there and I couldn't help point out. 
Um, this book, in large part, came out of a long time fixation I've had with the artist Marcel Duchamp. Um, how many people are familiar with Duchamp and his work? Okay, sort of a smattering of hands. Um, some people who are who know him know everything about him. And those who know him a little, I've found, know him as that urinal guy, right? The guy who submitted a urinal signed Armut to an exhibition in 1917 and caused, it was rejected, but it caused a huge scandal. You could cause big scandals um, like that in those days. Um, and that was with something that he later called a ready-made. Um, that is to, an object chosen by an artist, put into a different context, and believe it or not, that basically completely changed the whole landscape of art. Um, what we think about art, how we see art, how we relate to art, and love him or hate him for it. Um, all, basically all contemporary um, conceptual art owes a debt to Duchamp. And I'd been trying to write a book around Duchamp for a very long time, um, and getting, I was getting nowhere. Um, I tried to write him as a character, and that just wasn't working. And I finally decided to write something around his work and his legacy. And the more I looked into his work and his individual pieces, the more I saw how interconnected they all were, and how they formed a kind of puzzle but that there wasn't necessarily any one solution to this puzzle. The, the solution was, um, it, it depended on, on who was doing the solving. Because Duchamp had this idea that whoever was looking at a work of art, um, the meaning of that art, this kind of spark, this electrical charge happened in, the, in between the space, between the artwork and the viewer. And so the experience is different for each person. And so I, you know, in trying to figure out the, my solution to all of his works, um, this novel started to form. And um, I'm going to read a little bit from the prologue of the novel. Um, once I sort of had this backdrop of Duchamp and his work, and stuff, some of the stuff that Tom mentioned about um, urban exploration and other things that I'm kind of, I tend to get really interested in, and obsessive about weird fringy things like cults and secret societies and alternative science and things like that. And so I tried to sort of cram everything in there, but I didn't know what the story was. But I had, it started with an image um, of this young woman um, sitting alone in a derelict aquarium. So I'm just going to read about two pages from that. Uh, one dirty little secret about myself is that I kind of hate readings. Not doing readings, um, although I hate reading my own work, but I always drift off when other authors are reading. I love the Q&A part. I love writers talking about their work and their process. Um, so. I'm going to spare you as much as possible of the reading and um, just read a few pages just to kind of give you an idea of where the, the story started and where this character, um, Lee, came from. This is the prologue. 
And the prologue actually takes place, sort of jumps forward to about, you know, halfway into the book. Um, okay, so she's sitting alone in this derelict aquarium. She's an urban explorer herself, and she's gone here um, on her own to think about some things. The fossils are gone from the Paleozoic room, but one display remains intact. A Cambrian ocean diorama of faded plastic models, orange trilobites, green nautiluses, sea slugs, kelp, and anemones. A frozen, surreal arena of underwater plants and feverishly imagined bugs. It is in this room that Lee has spent hours, losing herself in the diorama every time she visits the derelict aquarium. She imagines that this must be what scuba diving feels like, isolate in an alien seascape. Tomi, the other member of the Philadelphia Urbex Society, membership too, is not with her tonight, because tonight she needs to be away from Tomi and his endless talk, his name-dropping arcane art movements, fluxus and letrism, pataphysics and situationist psychogeography, his insatiable craving for her attention. Urban exploration is not the safest of recreations, especially not for a single female, especially a female as slight, and as Tomi once, but only once, put it, as elfin as Lee. But she feels safer here than at other sites. The sheer remoteness makes the aquarium uninhabitable by squatters, as testified by the dearth of graffiti or other vandalism. She supposes that one of the petty island guards could potentially come by, but it is unlikely. The aquarium is not part of Sitco property, and by nature, security guards are incurious and lazy. Now she sits on an old wooden office chair she's commandeered from behind the cashier's desk, staring past the pregnancy test in her hand at the little plastic seascape of the diorama. The broken fronds and wilted arthropods, all now faded and cracked, and thinks about the tiny thing growing inside her. Lee knows who the father is, though she has no intention of telling him. The thing inhabits some subterranean cave of her body, floating in amniotic silence, just waiting to emerge and wreak havoc on Lee's life. All her hopes and plans, a life made by her own choices, even by a chance at college, snuffed before that life can take in its first breath. Unless she snuffs the thing inside her first, that is the real question hovering before her right now occupying space in the, in the diorama tank, somewhere between the Wawaxia and the Hallucinogenia. The thing is 33 days old. She knows the exact moment of its conception, and so she doesn't have long to decide what to do or the decision will be made for her. Lee stares into the glass tank a while longer, stares without seeing, until a single object begins to come into focus behind the field of molded prehistoric kelp, a rolled strip of paper, what can only be described as a tiny scroll, tied with a lock of what looks like human hair and propped up in the green plastic tentacles of a Cambrian anemone. Breaking one of the two cardinal rules of the Urbex Society, take nothing, leave nothing, Lee reaches in through the back of the tank and plucks out the scroll. The hair, black and long, snaps when she pulls on it, and the paper unfurls in her fingers. Lee flattens it with her palms onto the glass top of the tank and stares at it for several seconds, trying to comprehend its intent, because she understands immediately upon seeing the photograph that it has been left for her, which means the station master has found her. 
She's seen the photograph before, hanging above the desk in his room, and Lee studies the woman in it closely now. The photo is very old. The brittle paper crumbles a bit in her hands. She brings it to the bathroom, holds it up beside her head as she stands in front of the cracked mirror and shines her flashlight. It is like looking back into time into another version of herself, a visage that has changed only slightly as it echoed through the decades. She and the woman in the photo look nearly identical. Lee turns it over. Penciled along a top corner in a fluid European script is A.T. July 1911. Below that is the now familiar cryptogram, still unsolved after nearly a century. And below the cryptogram is a short note in the crabbed handwriting of the station master. Return what you have taken. So that's a little taste of the book. Um, before we go to questions, I do want to tell one little story. Um, and that is... I forbid that. We want a story. Um, this is a fairly bad replica I made of um, Duchamp's, one of Duchamp's ready-mades, one of his, what he calls assisted ready-mades, um, with hidden noise. So for anyone listening at home, you can just Google with hidden noise and see what this looks like. It is, as you can see, two normal brass plates with a ball of twine in the middle and these four brass screws holding it together and this cryptogram written on both sides, which I just referenced um, in the prologue there. And before he put it together, he gave it to his friend and collector, Walter Arnsberg, and told Arnsberg to insert something inside, put it all together, and not tell him what it was. And to this day, nobody knows what's inside with hidden noise. Um, it's meant to be picked up and shaken, so it has this, you know, this rattling sound in it. Not as far as I know, nobody's x-rayed it. I hope not. I hope they, you know, kind of kept it in the spirit of the mystery of it. But that's something that really always intrigued me, the mystery of this object. Um, you know, it's probably like a paperclip or something, but the, the, the unknown of it is so much more um, curious than that. And that, the con you know, that it continues to be unknown, that nobody's ever found out, and probably at this point can find out without destroying it. Um, and so this object became sort of central to uh, the book and a kind of central piece that, that is, is part of the plot. And if you read Gus's book, you find out he answers what's in the middle of it. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. My solution. I know, that's cool. And it is a paper clip. It's kind of a bummer. It's kind of a letdown. <laughs> But no, so I've always believed that readings that last longer than 15 minutes are a form of abuse. So um, thank you for not abusing us tonight. Um, it's a really wonderful book. Uh, there's lots of striking moments and scenes in it. And you know, the question I used to ask students when I was teaching creative writing, the first thing I would ask them was, you know, where did this story start? What was the line, the image, the moment where, you, where the clouds parted and you sort of thought, I have to... I have to write this. So what, what was that for you? Because I always found that there was, um, if, if someone was having trouble with the story, 
getting back to the purity of that thing that they first saw was 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 always a helpful question. And so f when I meet authors of books that I really like, I'm always curious as to what that was for them. So if you could tell us, that would be great. Yeah, I, I think the story itself, you know, I had all that backdrop that I was talking about, Duchamp, his legacy, these, this kind of cult of men who are all obsessed with, with his work and, and deciphering it, and these elements, peripheral elements, um, hallucinogenic drugs and, and, uh, and string theory and, and things like that among them. Um, but you know, the, the moment that really started it was that image of this young woman sitting in the aquarium um, and finding this note that had been obviously meant for her, which seemed impossible. Um, and I didn't know who she was at that point. Um, I didn't know her name, and I just sort of started writing from there. But I think just to, to go further than that, further back, the actual moment started. I was thinking about when this book actually started, and when I was uh, 19, or the summer after high school, and for many years after, I used to work in a used bookstore in, in um, San Francisco called uh, Green Apple Books. And it was one of those great old, everybody knows Green Apple sort of nods their head. They know like what Green Apple is. They're one of those old school bookstores, used bookstores. You go in there, everything's a total wreck. Um, there's books piled up. In every available space. You can't go in there looking for something. You just have to go in there knowing that there's something there waiting for you there if you know, just kind of open to it. But I, you know, as a worker bee, one of my jobs was to go up, haul boxes up to the back and sort them for shelving. And uh, the terrible worker that I was, I would find books in these boxes and have to read them right then and there. And this book on Duchamp, I had never seen Duchamp or didn't know his work. I was kind of a pretentious, arty kid. And like all pretentious, arty kids, I was really into data and surrealism. So I probably knew Duchamp by name a little bit. But I had never seen his work. And I remember browsing through it and came to this page here. This is the same book that I, I bought. Um, way back when. But this is of his work, The Large Glass, which is you know one of his major works, which is now permanently installed in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And I don't know exactly what it was that spoke to me about then, but it is um, you know, this sort of towering, 10-foot-tall work with, uh, that's, that was shattered in transit. And Duchamp, after piecing it together like a jigsaw puzzle, took him a year decided that it was finally finished because um, he had kind of abandoned it before that. He got bored with it. But it's really complex and it's actually a moment, a frozen moment of this, this narrative that takes place. And it's really layered and you have to kind of really go into it and read all of his notes to, to get into it. But something about it spoke to me and that started me on a kind of lifelong obsession with him. So there's a lot of stuff in this book other than Duchamp. There's secret societies, there's urbex, there's street kids, there's hacking, there's the dark net, there's Duchamp himself. Um, so let's talk about research. Are you of the school where you do just enough that you need to do or are you of the do way more than you could ever fit into the book school? 
Definitely the latter. I love research. I love, because I just like learning about things that I'm interested in and then later trying to figure out a way to fit them into the book. And my both my agent and my editor had to gently encourage me and it sometimes forced me to just get stuff, take stuff out that was just indulgences of stuff I'd learned and was interested in and thought was really cool and wanted to write about. And, but ultimately wasn't serving the story. But I love researching. I love learning about things that I, you know, I'm, I guess, I love being a generalist. I love learning about a lot, of, a little bit about a lot of stuff. And um, Duchamp turned out to be the perfect subject for this because the more that I learned about him and his work, the more I started connecting dots between all these other peripheral things like quantum physics and string theory and alchemy and even hallucinogenic drugs and things that are on the peripheries. His work is so wide open and open to kind of coming in there with your own interpretation that it allows you to connect all these dots, um, which was a lot of fun as a writer. Well, there's a really gripping section. I think one of the most sort of riveting sections of the whole book is uh, Lee, your your main character's experience of juvie, and all the kind of juvenile prison sections that had a real ring of authenticity to me. And I was very curious, like how you went about plausibly putting together the world of you know a, a young woman's juvenile detention center. Like, what did you do? Where did you go? Who did you talk to? Or did you just ascribe to Henry James's famous line where a young woman should be able to stand outside a barracks for five minutes, listen to conversation, and then go home and write a completely accurate novel of army life? Um, I think that, and I got very... If, if it comes off as realistic and, and not the kind of hokum that you see so much, then I got very lucky. You know, I, I, I read as much as I could about what time is like in a, in a juvie for young kids and um, tried to forget as much of that as possible and then just write the scenes as they, they occurred to me and, and hope that it, that it rang true. So... So related to that, I've never known you as someone who had any strong feeling for Philadelphia, say, um, and yet this is a book set there. I don't think you've ever lived there, have you? Now, I'm assuming you said it in Philadelphia because a lot of Duchamp's pieces are in the, that museum. Yeah. So how do you write about a city that you, so intimately about a city that you have you know, very little direct experience with? I, I find that a sort of terrifying... I wrote about 50 pages, I think, of the book, Knowing that it had to be set in Philadelphia because, as you say, his two major works, Duchamp's two major works, are permanently housed there. They'll never move. They can't be moved without destroying them. Um, and I knew I couldn't write about the city without going there, and I was lucky enough to have two really lovely, generous friends who lived there and who knew all the kinds of places that I... <clears throat> wanted to see. And because I had already mapped out the book, I didn't I didn't map out any of the plot, but I mapped out the outline of, of you know what the background of the book was. I knew the kinds of places I wanted to see. I wanted to see um, the kind of these got these beautiful old rotting derelict buildings and factories and sections. Um, and then there's kind of suburbs of Philadelphia with these lovely old two doors and Lee spends time you know, kind of squatting them 
when she she figures out who's going on vacation when and she squats these these people's houses um, and you know the area around the museum of course um, places like that and so I just tried to soak it in and and I was lucky that Philadelphia how many people have been to Philadelphia it's an awesome city it's like it really resonated me with me immediately like sometimes you walk you go into a city and it's just you have a kind of feeling like yeah, it's I mean, the I Chicago of the East Coast. I would much rather live in Philadelphia than New York, and much rather write about it as well. I really loved the city, so I got lucky that way. So, um, a lot of the things you write about Duchamp in the book are, are super interesting, but you also imply that he sort of got ahead of several major breakthroughs in physics decades before they were uh, common knowledge. So, could you sort of tease out for us, like what's real and what's not, in some of that stuff? Um, no, I'm not going to say what's... I, I like that line of, of not knowing what I made up whole hog and what I kind of teased okay. a little Did bit. Did Duchamp have an interest in theoretical... He, oh, very he was an engineer, right? Um, yeah, well, there's a, um, a woman... Um, I'm blanking on her name right now. I think it's the book is called Duchamp in Context. Um, and it's, you know, it's this big, it's this thick, and it's all about his relationship with science of the time, with the cutting-edge science of the early part of the 20th century, and how Duchamp was influenced by it. And another critic wrote another book, another sizable book about Duchamp's relationship with alchemy. And so these, you know, these, you can read so much, and, and he was so vague and opaque and, and about his intent. He was never very forthcoming about that. And so he just allows you to kind of go in there and, and make connections where they may or may not be. And so I kind of took permission to do that myself. Uh, I have noted your refusal to answer the question. Um, so I have a novelist friend who wrote a really wonderful book about a, a young musician that she was the narrator of. And there was like a, a lot of stuff in there on music theory and like classical music. And she said something really remarkable. And I said, wow, I didn't know you were so interested in this stuff. And she said, I'm not really, but the character was. And I thought that was like a fascinating, weird thing that happens to fiction writers when you get latched onto a person, a situation, you sort of enter their world and you have to kind of get interested in the stuff that the characters are interested in. So I didn't know anything about your Duchamp obsession, which you've already talked about. But I mean, how about stuff like urbex, urban exploration, and I mean, I cannot think of something I'd less want to do than that. So, um, did you do any of it? I mean, were you, how much of the stuff in the book did you come to get interested in that sort of bled in from Lee's experience, and how much of the stuff did you sort of project onto it? That's, uh, I'm curious. I mean, the, the kind of urban exploration that I've done would be disdained by any of the real kind of urban explorers that I write about. They would they would look at it like just kid kiddie stuff. You know, it wasn't any I used to crawl around in the uh there's these sort of um sewage drainage systems beneath Berkeley that I would kind of claw, crawl around crawl around in sometimes. Um our good friend John Beckman and I uh you know broke into a uh, necropolis outside of uh, Arles, I think, in, in Paris one night. But it wasn't, you know, it just wasn't really true urban exploration. It was just kind of 
dumb, drunken stuff. And so, <laughs> the kind of what I, you know, I'm frankly, I guess, I'm a writer who likes to imagine things, and I'm not as much of a doer. But I can sit there, and I can go through photographs, and I can read accounts, and be very envious of those who are out there and doing that actual exploration. But then, you know, hopefully write a passable account of it because I'm very invested in it and think it's great and kind of beautiful. Um, so how about Lee? How, I, I, I like the way you talked about you just saw this woman sitting in an aquarium. Um, how long did it take you to come upon the fact that she has this stepfather who's into Buddhism and, and you know, all the like weird, quirky character stuff? Would, I mean, how fully formed was she when she came out? How long did it take you to crack the nut of that? She came surprisingly quickly, and that is, I think, a p somewhat a point of, of, I'm slightly embarrassed by this, but I th I've learned that I have a very direct channel to my adolescent self and to the feelings of confusion and angst and invisibility and yet wanting so badly to be seen and be noticed and all this stuff that kind of roiled around in me as, a, as, a, as an adolescent. And I use, I think, that directly. Um, that's how, that's where Lee came out of. Um, Steve, her stepfather, who's, uh, people who've read the book, and there's some pretty um, nefarious, awful people in this book, but a lot of people think Steve is the worst. <laughs> and I, and there's, I'm, no, I grew up in Northern California in the 1970s, and I knew so many Steves. There were these guys who would kind of take on the trappings of, you know, Eastern spirituality and Buddhism and, um, you know, what it means to be truly at peace with the world. And, and, but it was all, there's a, such a phoniness to it all and a, self, and a kind of self serving aspect to it and a narcissism around it. And so Steve was just just drawing from that well of, of those people. I had, even as a kid I could see through those people. Hmm. So what, one of the blurbs you got from Colson Whitehead refers to the book as addictive. And I noticed when I was reading it like it's, it's just, it is a breakneck kind of book. You just start and it just goes and goes and goes. And it's really wonderful in that way. And I was thinking about some of the quote-unquote commercial novelists that I really like, Elmore Leonard, William Goldman, who when they're really good, like a book like The Marathon Man or Get Shorty or something like that, one of those books that straddle the line between literary and commercial fiction, you, part of you is just like, why isn't every book like this? You know, just super fun to read. And uh, Elmore Leonard said, you know, he likes to write books that have that seem to have had all the boring parts cut out of them, and I think that's really good advice. Whether you're, you know, Elmore Leonard or, or anyone. Um, so, I was wondering, like the the one book that I that I work that I worked on that I was conscious of trying to create that kind of propulsive and keep turning the pages is this book, The Disaster Artist, which um, probably not coincidentally has outsold all my other books by a factor of like ten. So I'm curious when you started working on getting into this, were you conscious of creating that propulsive feeling? And, and it's different from like a more kind of literary book, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. It's a, di it's a difference between 
texture and speed, I guess. Um, but but you, you you do both of these in this book really well. But the the speed part, I was I was I thought was remarkable. Well, this is my fourth written novel, my first published. And to be quite frank, I was tired as hell of writing books and not publishing them, not selling them. I can't imagine why. <laughs> and I don't have anything against propulsive, really well done propulsive commercial novels. Um, and I ate them up, you know, as a, as a young person. And I always thought they were really hard to actually achieve, to do one well. And I decided to try and, and do a good novel that a reader would have a really hard time putting down. And I had to fight with myself a lot in doing this, not so much in the writing of it. I mean, when the first draft of this was a bloated, inchoate mess. And it was super episodic, and my agent kept saying, no, take this out, take this out, cut this out. And so, you know, it wasn't like this where I just sped through and everything just kind of became, was immediately um, this, this thrill roller coaster. I had to rein in certain impulses that I'm self-indulgent impulses that I have to kind of, you know, indulge in a 20-page passage of, of urban exploration and, you know, cut that down to one or two pages and just cut out everything that wasn't um, serving the story in some way. And I think the other thing that I did that helped do that was during getting sick of not selling books, I started writing uh, screenplays for a while and studying screenwriting, and that taught me a lot about efficiency and, you know, not, just not allowing yourself to kind of bloat the story with unnecessary extraneous stuff, self-indulgent stuff. So like you, I've written you know more than one book that did not get published, and that is immensely difficult, as you know. So I'd love to hear you talk about the moment when you were working on this book when you thought, wait a minute, this might be it. And then leading to that, the moment when you, when you, when you got the offer for this book, like what, what did that feel like? How was that for you? Well, I've been wanting to be a novelist since I was in my early 20s and been at it for a long time. And every time I wrote a book, well, the first book that I wrote, I thought was like brilliant. I thought it was going to blow the doors off literature. And, and Should I, we confess that I tried, I was a boy editor, I was a 26-year-old editor at Henry Holt, and I tried like hell to publish that book. No, no, this was before that book. Oh, okay. Now, this is a book that's in a drawer. and I didn't see that one, right? will never, ever, ever <laughs> see the light of day. It's so um, bad. It's unbelievably embarrassing. But then Tom did read this other book, um, which, you know, I thought was good and got very close. Never, you know, Tom, God bless you, fought like hell for it, but it never, never found a home. Um, Oh, you're just in a room with a bunch of people. Maybe I bought a book the week before and my boss was like, cool it. You know, it's just, it's a million intangibles that when you're trying to do this, so many things impact like what, um, yeah, like the books that I would bought versus the books I wasn't able to buy, I couldn't tell you what the distinguishing characteristic was, you know? It's all just luck and weirdness and chaos. Yeah. Um, and then the third book, what happened? Well, I wrote another one, and that was, 
not actually not very good if I look back at it now and if I'm honest and that didn't sell and then the book that Tom fought for actually did sell um, to this tiny little press yeah I remember this oh god and they um, they bought it. They were really enthusiastic about it. It was going to be their debut book for uh, you know that they had ever published. They were an imprint of a, of another small press, and they were there was their, like their literary imprint. And it spent a year heavily editing it, and it got a you know it was a great cover. Tom wrote a really lovely, generous blurb for it. It was about to go out, and then this was 2010. Borders collapsed. Oh Publisher closed. And there's like the way the money was tied in with like Borders owed the parent publisher money and all this stuff, and so they folded. And that was. And then I was, and then I had hope again because my agent took that book and said, "Well, you've edited it so so much. It's been 10 years. Let's just go out and try and sell it again." So I was like, "All right, woohoo! Big house." And it didn't, you know, it just didn't sell again. And so it's a tough racket, everyone. That's, that's the moral here. At this point, uh, I was, you know, you can keep, you can tell yourself for so long that it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. And then at that point, I stopped believing that it was gonna happen. But I couldn't stop writing because that's just too depressing. I don't mean to get things too <laughs> depressing here, but I was in a space when I was writing this book where I didn't know, I'd lost total confidence as a writer. I didn't know what was what. I didn't know what I had. Like I said, it was this inchoate mess. I, hand, I sent it to my agent, who, God bless her, stayed with me for these 15 years. And she wasn't very enthusiastic about it, for a reason I'll say in a minute. But she called me a week later. I remember I was walking in the zoo in Chicago with my newborn son and my wife, and she called. And her enthusiasm was so overwhelming. She was so hot on this book and loved it so much and was so just, like, determined. You could tell that she knew that she could sell it. And... Um, but she said, oh, but by the way, that, that little summary you gave me when you, you know, attached to the manuscript, never tell anybody that. Never, never attach that to the book at all. Um, that bad, huh? Yeah, it was that bad. So I'm not much of a pitch man. But the book itself apparently had promise because she close read it with me three more times. And that's when it became less, that's when, it, I mean, this book was originally probably about 200 pages longer than this. And she really helped me, like get it down to and so yeah she sent so when it was finally six months later when it was ready to send out she sent it out and uh, it was amazing it was two editors at two different houses absolutely loved it and it got into that sort of bidding war that all young novels are you know want and um, you now they want to publish all the other novels well, it's, but the thing is, I don't know if I want to publish the other novels now. Um, they're written by different, a different person, in a sense. But this one, you know, I was just like, they were so, it was like, it was even more than the money. It was their enthusiasm for it that I think gave, it totally validated my 30 years or 25 years of just total dumb, blind faith in myself as a writer, you know? I felt so stupid about it for so long, you know, at the end there. Like, what did I do with my life, you know? And then 
Boom. So yeah. I got very lucky. So it's just my last question before we open it up. Uh, you have a three-year-old. I have a three-year-old. Um, has becoming a dad like changed the way you write or what you write about or how you think about writing? I think that remains to be seen. I'm sh it changed me a lot as a person. I mean, it's totally transformed me in ways that I probably don't even know. And I can't help but write about those things, like from who I am at the moment. And so I'm... Sh yeah, I can't imagine it won't, but I have no idea how it will change me. How have you changed? As a person? I think I've gotten much less self-centered and much more concerned with the train wreck of a world that we're like bringing young children into and, and my decision, you know, just levels of responsibility have changed and... and I think I've become more curious. I've, I've always been a curious person, but I think I lost a lot of curiosity for a while, and then watching this three-year-old's curiosity with the world, I think ignites something, reignites something. Yeah. I've seen every Disney film released in the last decade. It's changed me. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, I'd love to open this up to questions anyone has. Um, Eric, yeah. Uh, I'm someone who's also dabbled in screenwriting and prose writing, and I go back and forth when I, you mentioned screenwriting a bit. I wonder if you have uh, the experience that some of us have where, you know, once you learn how story engines work, and you learn the hero's journey and save the cat and all that good stuff, yeah. can you, when you go back to prose, can, like, are you looking at your manuscript like, okay, like, the act one turn has to have like 25% more, <laughs> act two, like, how do you, do you, do you, can you ever unlearn or un, can you, can you compartmentalize your screenwriting knowledge or do you bring it with you to the prose process now that you know how that works? I think for me, even with screenwriting, it was a matter of, I'm like, I did exactly what you're talking about with screenwriting and was so exact with those like turns that are supposed to happen at a certain place. I didn't apply it that at all to this book, but I think when you do learn that, you internalize it to a certain extent where you can't help but kind of intuitively follow that. So I didn't like apply that in any specific way. But yeah, I think that's, you know, that is, I guess, the way that learning to be a screenwriter translated for me to being a better you know, writer of, of prose narrative is that it, it gets internalized in a way that I make less mistakes of just, you know, writing stuff that isn't really serving the story and it's just going off in some tangent that's not interesting ultimately. Yeah, it sounds like it might have helped with the forward momentum of your book. Yeah, I think it, it really did. I think that spending a couple of years writing screenplays was key to that for me. But of course not. I mean, I personally like books that are nothing but tangents. You know, I mean, there's, there's certain kinds of books that, I do too. that are not propulsive that I love too. But, and I uh, just, but I learned after a while that I'm not that writer. Yeah, like, I'm right. no... Nor am I. Yeah. And I can't write pages of gorgeous prose description. You know, I'm not Cormac McCarthy. I'm not going to, like... That's just not my ball game. And so I think when you learn the limitations, I think that also kind of helps. What's your strength, since you know it? I think my strength is, um, I think this is a very unique 
book in that it it just it brings in so many weird disparate elements and manages to make a cohesive believable story within a world that if I was to describe the novel in a couple sentences it would sound kind of contrived and unbelievable but I think I can create within this world what a lot of good speculative fiction writers do is like a universe that's just slightly alternate to our own that's totally contrived on the surface but feels very believable when you're in it. I'm I'd like to ask that question and I want to riff towards it. Um, so that space that a reader brings to a work, that that spark of life that Jujan wants us to enter, and I believe a good reader brings to every work, and good criticism is a good reader on steroids and showing us how to read. Is, that's what the act of good criticism is in my mind. So I'm you know, thinking all these things when you're saying it, and I've been watching, well, I've been really studying um, Lichtenstein and, and um, Warhol, who have a connection I never got in my education. And Warhol is a master of sustained monotony. I mean, you watch this guy, he's a brilliant man. And what he's doing is showing you what our era is saying to us. He's finding these objects, he's throwing them back at us, he's saying, this is the monosyllabic, monolinear life you are marching towards, and you're not even going to have a thought about it. And it's just brilliant. And then you look at Lichtenstein, he's grabbing these found images, and he's giving us narrative drama from, you know, these emoticons, which may be our next successful novel, um, in four profound emoticons or something, you know, we'll, we'll stretch the emotion towards. So what you're saying about Duchamp, I'm rethinking, an artist I never really liked, but I appreciate what you're saying. Um, and I like Eve Ensler, or who, who was it? It was uh, Eve, she had, she did chess with him. Um, oh, that photo of them, of, Eve right. Ends. She's actually very good at Right. And, um, and she was a really interesting feminist, too. But, um, so Duchamp, he, he is grabbing, in my mind, I'm seeing him merging into modernism, looking at design changes, and the first person to really pick up on found collaging imagery, the first. And I see it from a design perspective where lines are changing all over the earth, architecture is different. I never thought really of the science, but how would you relate that passage, which you seem to discover in Duchamp, into where we are headed now, into this um, corporate imagining? I like cor corporate imagining. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's the kind of question where I will I will have no good answer right now and I'll walk away having, you know, thought about it or not thought about it and it'll like something will come. But what you inspired me, so I thought maybe I'd throw, you know, since you're saying all this and this is what I'm thinking. And hopefully somebody much smarter than I can. <laughs> can what you're saying is so inspiring. And I mean, I guess what it points to is that you are able to draw all this really heady, interesting stuff into a tight story. And, you know... Um, You'll love this book. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Anyone else? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, it sounds like the book itself started with inspiration that was from your youth. You've been drawing from like a lifetime worth of experience and uh, to narrative. When did you start writing, and how long did that process take? I started as a screenwriter in in, in uh, film school, is it? And then I, I after college I moved out of the country and I had no way of really or I didn't feel like I had a way of making films where I was living um, in uh, what was then Czechoslovakia and so I started novelizing the screenplay that I'd written in college and I discovered that the the process of writing prose suited me so much more than I, than, than film that it was non-collaborative it was just me in this little like you know self-contained box of my own making, making all my own decisions, my own mistakes, and not having to kind of work stuff out with anyone. And that's, that's when I created, I, I wrote that first really awful book, but it did give me the bug and the kind of the desire and, and the drive and the thought that I could like do this. And that's when I started. Why was it awful? Oh God! On so many different levels, it was it was pretentious, and it was title, please. Um, That's really cool. Um, just curious. Oh God! It, no, it was it was something like Daddy Swank's bargain basement of human con human tortures and inhuman contortions. That's a good title. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Um, so that's as much as you'll get from me on that book. It's really, but you know, we all have, all writers have that drawer novel or story or something that they hope will never see the light of day. And, but it did have a good purpose, you know. Like, yep. uh, the second question uh, is you're saying you have these doubts, or you have, 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 have them in your career, and you're questioning your, what, why you chose to do this, but uh, I know you're a professor. And also, and you said you're, a lot of your um, your life views change when you had your son. But do you get like what kind of rewards do you get from your students? And I would imagine that has to, has to be very satisfying, in knowing that you're guiding people towards understanding their stories and making them make this choice. So, what is that relationship been like? And what have you gotten in terms of rewards from teaching? I have very mixed relationship with that. I love teaching. I love working with my students and, like you say, helping them create the best work they can, helping them take risks, helping them be honest, helping them shape their stories. At the same time, whenever I find a really talented student, and I teach at University of Chicago, and this is the first time we actually have a major, so most of my students haven't been majors. They're just kind of dabbling in it. And, I mean, frankly, you know, 80% of them were more talented than I was at their age. Um, but the ones who are really, really talented, I almost feel irresponsible telling them how much talent they have, how good their stuff is, because, you know... It's no guarantee. The risk of that is sending them on this path of, like, being yeah. 45 years old and wanting wanting that more than anything in the world and not, for, like, whatever reason, not being able... To achieve it, and uh, you know, I don't know. Like, if someone had told me that at that age that I would be like 45 and not have a book published, I would have like, "Fuck you, man! Fuck you, old man!" <laughs> um, and I, you know, I wouldn't have. 
believed it and I wouldn't have seen myself down that path and I would have a hard time wishing that on someone else. And just as a corollary, and the last thing I'll say, I guess, I think we're running out of time, but it brings me back to like this piece of advice that I really keep going back to. I was a young writer, I was at the Squaw Valley's Writers Conference and it wasn't me, but it was another young graduate student brought his work to this one of the writers there who was uh, the published writers who was like leading workshops and stuff, um, a man named Mark Childress. And he said, Mark, you've read my work. You know, I'm really struggling here. Tell it to me straight. Do I have what it takes to be a writer? And Mark just said, look, if you can stop writing, by all means, stop writing. Um, you know, the world doesn't need another writer. And I keep going back to that because, uh, like, ultimately, even if I, even if this book never sold, I would keep writing because it's just like it's what I do, and it's what I do to kind of figure, make sense of the world, and make sense of myself. And the publishing is great, and it's validating, and it's it adds a whole other aspect to it, but. Uh, you know, I think I would have to keep doing it with it. So I like just to like my students don't need me to tell them keep writing. You've got talent. You know, if they if they need to do it, they'll do it. I'll make one last question. Sure. Uh, Far from cool is exceptional, and it was a Nichols finalist. So Thank you. Are, the, the, are you have any plans for other screenplays, or what is the plan for Ready Made Feet? Are you thought about at all adapting? I would love. I think it would make a fantastic movie and maybe even a better TV show, so I would love to see something happen with that. Um, and yeah, there's, I'm talking with people about you know, writing the screenplay for it, but I don't ever believe any of this until it happens. You know, I've heard too many stories, so yeah, I think I would be really excited. You, you know, I've heard people refer to adapting their own books as giving themselves a root canal. Really? Yeah. All right, well, we'll see how that, <laughs> yeah. how that plays out. I may yeah. find that just as excruciating. Yeah. I think there's one more question in the back. Yeah, I was interested in uh, You said that like, you might have published books that you wrote in the past because uh, you felt like a different person at the time. Because I, oh, yeah. Uh, I was curious if you could just sort of like elaborate on that. Um, and like looking at it from a perspective, just art in general. Uh, I have a tendency to think a lot of artists, and I don't know if you consider yourself a writer or an artist or what, but uh, they kind of have sort of a theme from very young that kind of carries over sure. even to older. So whether it's like, you know, coming from a prism of like love or philosophy or the baseline is kind of continuous. Right. Uh, when you said like, you know, you're a different person, did that ever sort of shift or change or you I mean, I think there's a through thread through all every book that I've written where you can see certain themes or elements of my personality or things that I'm interested keep carrying over and over. And when I say it was written by a different person, I think just a less sophisticated person, a person who's younger and who just wanted to show off a little bit more. There were like elements of, of you know, of youthful exuberance in writing, which can be really great, but can also be just a little bit, you can tell that the writer is just wanting to like show what a good writer they are. And I can read over my old work and see that 
in it and cringe a little bit when I see it. And so, you know, if I was to go and try and publish one of those old books, I would have to take all that stuff out. And I don't know if I'd want to go through the editing process that it would take to do that, because I'm more interested in moving forward. But there's definitely, you know, old books, even that first one, as bad as it is, I'm sure has like core elements that you would find in this book here. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.